0: You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Amen. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you, man. Thanks, man. And uh, Creekside, thank you. Uh, I do not take it lightly that uh, we get to do this. It is not something we deserve. It is a gift, and uh, I hope to steward it well. So, thank you. Proverbs 14, 28 says this, uh, In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people, a prince is ruined king is only great if his people think he's great. With no subjects, with no people, a king is just a weird guy who really likes being in charge, uh, which is why even when a, an earthly leader has absolute authority, they need to at least give the impression that they're serving their people, right? That really, it's, it's best that I'm ruling because you get what you really want. And, that, and that's why politicians lie. Right? That's why they make promises they can't possibly keep. The era of big government is over. No new taxes. I will never lie to you. We will put a colony on the moon by 2020. We will cure diabetes, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's in my first term. Uh, Those are real statements made by politicians. And we just sort of expect politicians to say crazy stuff, right? We, we want them to serve us. We want them to make these big promises. It's one reason we have a really hard time with Jesus. People tend to view Jesus as the friendly member of the Trinity. You know, God the Father might seem aloof and distant, and the Spirit might seem spirity, weird, weird. But Jesus is the approachable one. He's the gentle one. He's nice. Now, Jesus is kind. We'll see that this morning. But but that view of Jesus misses something. In fact, it misses the thing. The thing that, according to the New Testament, is most central to who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? If you had to sum up the New Testament answer, you know what it is? He's a king. In fact, he's the king. 200 times the New Testament writers call Jesus Christ. Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. And it's a royal title. In fact, every time we read those words, Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, we're reading King Jesus. Jesus, the king. Jesus is a king. Here's what's challenging about that. Jesus isn't like any other king. Jesus never tries to garner popular support. Jesus never caters to public interests. There's no campaign where Jesus goes, remember, you know, vote for Jesus in eighty thirty. 30 No. Jesus just says things. He just does things. He just reigns. As someone has said, Jesus didn't come to take sides. He just came to take over which means that that followers of Jesus are his servants. We're not his constituents. That's a crucial difference. Because as long as I see Jesus as a means of getting what I want, as a king who serves to, to give me what I want, I'm going to be very disappointed with Jesus. I'm going to be very disillusioned as a Christian. But if I see Jesus as the king I need, because I do need a king, and the one who must get his way in my life. That's where the good life is found. And I think that's what Palm Sunday is about. Today's Palm Sunday, when Christians around the world reflect on the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. On Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and for the first time in his entire ministry, he publicly declares, I'm the guy. I'm the king. And the crowds rejoice, but the reason they rejoice is because they have no clue what kind of king Jesus is, and we're prone to do the same thing. To rejoice not over who Jesus actually is, but who we want him to be. So let's look at two things today. First at the the king we want, who do we want Jesus to be, and then the king we actually need. Who does Jesus think? We need as king. So, king we want, then the king we need. What kind of king did people want Jesus to be? What kind of king do we want him to be? Let's look at this passage. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, there's two ways to interpret this. Jesus, he's coming up to Jerusalem. He's he's about to go public. Up to this point, he's, he's kept his identity as Messiah secret. Now he's ready for his grand appearance. He's going to say to everyone, I'm the guy. I'm Israel's promised king. So, so what's up with the donkeys? What's going on here? Well, there are two ways to look at this. Uh, it could be that Jesus knew the guy who owned the donkeys. Could be that they made some secret arrangement to get the donkeys, right? And if that's the case, then the Lord needs them is like code words, right? The disciples go into this village, and then they're like, hey, what do you do?" And They're like, hey, the Lord needs them, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, ah, ah, right? They're like, this is, this is the time, right? We're about to do this. That's, that's one way to interpret this I think it's the wrong way to interpret it because what we see throughout Matthew is that Jesus just acts like a king and that's what he does here in the ancient world a king had the right of requisition that means a king could just demand to take things and use them for royal purposes and I think that's Matthew's point Jesus has need of these Jesus is the Lord with a capital L. He has supernatural knowledge. He already knows there are donkeys there. He already knows what he wants. He's the Lord of creation, and so he just says, hey, I need those. And he expects the owner to respond in obedience. But why would he expect that? Well, because when Jesus says things, things happen. When he tells demons to leave, they go away. When he tells sickness to leave, it just disappears. When he tells the wind and the waves to do things, they listen because he's a king. And immediately in this passage, we are jarred by Jesus' royal status and his authority. And how you respond to this is actually a great acid test of your view of Jesus. Does it bother you that Jesus can walk into a village and just say to someone, give me those? I need those, because if it bothers you, you have to ask yourself, why? See, if Jesus really is the capital L Lord of all creation, then he owns the donkeys anyway. They're already his, and your stuff is already his. In fact, he could come to you today. The Lord has need of your car. The Lord has need of your house. The Lord has need of your time. The Lord has need of your money. In fact, the Lord has need of my money, right? If it's Jesus talking. That's my car. That's my house. He's the Lord. So you see already, we're jarred by the absolute authority of Jesus. And if he is who he says he is, I shouldn't be offended when he takes what's his. That's who we're talking about in this passage. The disciples listened, and they went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Actions speak louder than words, don't they? Actions speak louder than words. It is one thing to tell a woman, girl, I'm gonna marry you someday. Trust me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna marry you. It's another thing to put the ring on the finger, isn't it? Actions speak louder than words. It would be one thing if Jesus walked up to Jerusalem and said, Hey everybody. I'm the king. Really, I'm the king. Look at me. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He gets on a donkey, and for Jews, nothing could communicate more strongly that Jesus is the king. And I know what you're thinking. How in the world does riding on a donkey communicate that? Well, believe it or not, in the the symbolic universe of Judaism, You know who rides kings, donkeys? I already gave you the answer. It's a king. (laughs) I'm tired, all right? I need a sabbatical. I mix up my words, okay? (laughs) A donkey is a royal animal. In fact, in in 1 Samuel, David rides a donkey down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. In 1 Kings, Solomon enters Jerusalem on a donkey to be coronated as, as king, And the Old Testament prophesies that the king, the Messiah, will come, the one who will defeat sin, defeat death, rule the world. When he shows up, he's going to arrive on what? A donkey. We get this way back in Genesis. In fact, Joseph prophesies this in Genesis 49, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Here's here's what Joseph is saying, that this king is going to arise from the tribe of Judah, and all the peoples of the world will obey him, and he will come and tie his donkey the foal, the offspring of the donkey to the vine. In other words, he's going to bring in a time of untold abundance and prosperity for the world. And so think about it. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. The people know what he's doing. Think about this image. This is Passover. This is the 4th of July and Christmas and everything all in one for the Jews. This is the biggest holiday of the year. The the city of Jerusalem has swelled to three times its normal size. People all around the Mediterranean world have made this pilgrimage into the city. And you know, when you came to Passover, the last leg of the journey, everyone walked. Everyone. Everyone would walk and ascend up. To the city gates. So imagine throngs and throngs of people walking up to Jerusalem, and there's one guy, one guy who's not walking. Instead, he's riding a donkey, and it happens to be Jesus. What would you think if you're a Jew? Oh man, this is big. (laughs) This is really big. And the crowds immediately pick up on what Jesus is doing. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches, that's right, it's Palm Sunday, branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is the equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. This is saying this guy's a king. He needs to be treated like a king. Now, why would the crowds think that? Most of these crowds are making the pilgrimage from Galilee, from northern Israel, which is where Jesus did his public ministry. Now, you know from the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus, very early on, becomes something like a, a celebrity in Galilee. People see him do miracles and cast out demons, and everyone's wondering, could this be the guy? And the rumor starts spreading. So within northern Israel, there's a lot of hype about Jesus. And so as Jesus is making this pilgrimage with all of these people from his home region, what are they thinking when he gets on the donkey? I knew it. I told you that was the guy. He's here. And so they know what to do. They roll out the red carpet and then they start to proclaim the praises of Jesus. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So so as they are approaching Jerusalem, the crowd begins to sing Psalm 118. Jews would sing that song during Passover as they made their ascent up to Jerusalem. This is a song they would sing as they would be walking up to this festival. And if you look at Psalm 118, it's a song That you would sing at the enthronement of a king. That's what Psalm 118 is. It's this song, an ode to Israel's king, and it's a prayer that God would send the king, the Messiah, who will fix it all. Hosanna originally meant save us, Lord. So these people are praising God that the Savior has arrived, but they're also crying out for deliverance. They're saying, save us now, Lord. Now, all these Galilean travelers, they acknowledge Jesus as the king, right? So, in one sense, they get the the question right. He's the guy. But the more interesting question is, what kind of king do they think is coming into Jerusalem? Because Psalm 118 is, is clear. Three times in the psalm, the king says, my enemies arose, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Psalm 118 is about a warrior king who is going to enter Jerusalem as a conquering king and handle business and conquer the oppressors of God's people and establish his reign in Jerusalem. And so it's only natural that these Galileans would think he is about to do what? Set up his throne right now, kick the Romans out, let's go. This is the time. We are about to get God's kingdom on earth right now. It's what they expected the Messiah to do. They expected Jesus to come and make war and set up his throne. Here's what's interesting. It's not just all these Galileans who think that's what Jesus is about to do. It's what his disciples think he's about to do. Right before this, as they're journeying toward Jerusalem, remember one of of the disciples' moms comes up to Jesus. Remember this? Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, this is amazing because Jesus has been preparing the disciples for what's coming. In fact, twice already he said at this point, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And it's almost as if the disciples say, yeah, 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 there's a whole death thing, but like your kingdom's coming. And the mom's like, yeah, I, I, yeah okay, whatever, but, but can my sons like, uh, can they get like special treatment here? Would, would that be cool if they can sit on your right and your left in your kingdom, which is about to come? See, see here's the point. For the disciples, for everyone, the, the, they get excited about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is going to meet their expectations. Of what a king will be and at root that's who we want Jesus to be apart from his grace we want a king who's gonna meet our expectations and we are his constituents and he is gonna give us what we want and what the Jews wanted more than anything was political liberation now God's kingdom now they want a Messiah who's gonna make war now and fix Israel's problems now right and before you get too smug at the Israelites, you have to ask yourself, what expectations do I place on Jesus? Because at some level, all of us come to the king, not because we think we need a king, but because of what we can get from the king. What, what bargain have you made with Jesus, something that you think he will give you if you follow him? What is that mental calculus for you? Because I think the temptation for me is to believe that following Jesus will get me the good life rather than believing that following Jesus is the good life. That following Jesus will get me rewards Rather than following Jesus is the reward. All of us have one. Is it success? Is it compliant children? Is it a good, stable, moral life? Is it a relationship you hope to get? Is it affirmation? Do you want to be praised by the praiseworthy? Is it ministry success? What is the thing you think Jesus will give you if you follow him? What is the thing you're hoping he will give you that he doesn't promise to give you? Because whatever that thing is, is the thing that, it's an expectation you're putting on Jesus. And as long as that expectation is central to you, you're going to be disappointed with Jesus. Because you're going to think, God, I did this for you, I did this for for you, and you didn't give me X. Whatever it is. Right? Ask yourself, what is that thing? What expectation are you putting on him? Because there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee for me that that, that Creekside is going to thrive into the future because I follow Jesus. Can I be happy? If it doesn't, what is that gut check thing for you? That's the question to ask. What expectation are you putting on the king? You know, at this point, you might be thinking, Jeff, Jesus is a pretty lousy king. I mean, why would I follow a king who doesn't give me what I want? Right? It's like voting for a president who doesn't want to fulfill your agenda, right? It doesn't even make sense. Because the reason for having a king is because we need a king. We actually need someone to reign over us. We don't need a king who will fulfill our expectations. We need a king who will fulfill God's expectations. We need a king who will do what's best for us. And and see, that's what the crowd didn't realize. Jesus is the king, but but they don't understand the timing. What Jesus is coming to do is not to make war, but to offer what? Peace. Peace. He comes to make war against Satan and sin and death, but what he offers to every human being is peace. Peace. And and see, the crowd, they only get one part of the whole donkey thing. They they, they fasten on to the king part. But what they miss is that kings come on a donkey when they offer what? Peace. Peace. That's why Matthew says this. This took place, Jesus coming out on a donkey, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble, gentle, lowly, mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew is emphasizing the fact that Jesus comes in peace. He comes gently. He comes in a lowly, accessible way to show what kind of king he is, a king that will bring peace. And it's interesting, whenever the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, ask yourself, how do they quote it? Because the way they quote it shows what they want to emphasize. You know what Zechariah 9.9 says? He didn't quote the whole thing. Zechariah 9.9 says, your king is coming to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. What part does Matthew take out? Triumphant and victorious. Why? Because in God's providence, Jesus doesn't come triumphant and victorious at his first coming. When does he come that way? At his second coming right? Zechariah 9 talks about this king who conquers northern Israel and then comes as a conquering warlord offering peace. Now, in one sense, Jesus did just conquer. He conquered Satan and sickness and, established, and was bringing in God's kingdom throughout northern Israel, and now he comes in. But the triumphant, victorious warlord part of this, it's not yet. Now he comes humble. He comes bringing peace. Jesus is the presence of peace. Jesus offers peace. He's a king who offers peace with God, peace with one another. And just Jesus showing up brings peace. You know, it's, it's amazing. Um, have, you ever, have you ever seen someone ride a donkey? There you go. Now you have like the least intimidating thing in the world. It's a weird flex. You know, I'm going to ride a donkey, right? No one flexes by riding a donkey. The, The whole point of riding a donkey is that you're not scary. You're not terrifying. In fact, you're gentle, you're lowly, you're approachable even though you have all the authority. You're coming down to the level of the people you want to lead, and here's the amazing thing about Jesus: He shows up. He brings peace. You know, a foal. He's he's riding a foal. That's like a baby donkey. Um, donkeys are not compliant animals. They need to be broken. They are stubborn as all get out. A foal has not been broken. That's why it needs its mom because it's skittish and it's stubborn and it'll kick. And what does Jesus do? He sits on the baby donkey, and what does it do? Peace. Jesus' reign brings peace. When Jesus gets his way in your life, what's it going to bring? Peace. Because everything Jesus rules over experiences peace. That that word that Matthew uses there, quoting Zechariah, humble on a donkey, it's, it's the word gentle. Same word. It's the word Jesus uses when he talks about himself. Remember what he says? Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle, humble, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus He doesn't meet our expectations. He doesn't rule to give us what we want. He rules to get what he wants. But what he wants in our lives is better than what we want for our lives. Because Jesus loves us more than we love ourselves. See, here's the point. We need a king who fulfills God's expectations. If Jesus came the first time to make war, If he showed up on the white horse, that means we're doomed. That means justice is served. There's no hope of redemption. Jesus coming humbly and disappointing everyone was the best thing for all of us, right? Jesus coming humbly meant I'm coming as the suffering servant to die for the sins of the world so you can have peace with God. And what that means is that Jesus' plan for your life is always best. It's always best. And Jesus will constantly confound your plans and frustrate your plans, not because he hates you, but because he wants to give you rest and peace. And he wants better things for you than you want for yourself because he reigns. He has to get his way in your life for you to be happy as a Christian. Because he's a king. And he's the only king who gives rest. And that's the question to ask. Do I believe that Jesus getting what he wants in me is better than me getting what I want from Jesus? That's the question. Jesus always wants better things for us than what we want for ourselves if we will sit under his yoke, his control. See, that's the great paradox about being ruled by Jesus. You get ruled by Jesus... And what do you get? Rest. You take on a yoke and what happens to your burden? It gets lifted. The the only liberation you can experience is sitting under the reign of Jesus because only Jesus knows how you work and how you're designed to live. And and so, sitting under him is the only way to be free. Let me give you an example from, from this week. Um, I, I like control. Mm. I'm very conscientious. I'm very detail-oriented. And things work when I'm in control. And I get angry. I've become more angry. I used to be laid back, and then I had children. Um, <laughs> Why are you laid back, Jeff, anymore? Um, just wait, right? Um, and, and, and I've been asking God to work on my anger, and, and I keep asking, you oh, know, God, make me slow to anger, make me slow to anger. But he keeps putting me in situations where I, you know, have every right not to be slow to anger. Why is it? So, like, I'm writing this sermon on Thursday. I'm going I need, to, I need some sympathy, so I'm going to complain. So, <laughs> I'm writing the sermon, and, and Cashel has to go to work, and she calls. She's like, honey, my car's dead. The battery's dead. And I'm like, oh, no, like, I got to get this thing in, there's a deadline, so I run home, we switch cars, and I'm just sitting there with a dead car, and so I call Kyle, I'm like, my car's dead. He's like, okay, so he comes over, and we try to charge it, and it won't take a charge, and I'm like, oh, no, that's bad. So I call AAA, and they got the battery guy out there, and, and he starts charging, and he's like, oh, I guess it won't charge, and I'm like, oh, no, that's really bad, and he's like, you want me to tow it? And I'm like, I don't know. You're supposed to tell me that, right? Like, you're the car guy, and he's like, all right, so we leave it there. And so I'm like, oh, no, i got to get this car fixed. And so, But then i got to get the kids to this thing. So I find another car to take the kids to this thing. So I take the kids to the thing, and I get the car. And then I, I'm like, you know what? I need to get something done. I need to be productive because this day is frustrating. And so I had all these checks to deposit. So I grab the checks, and I go to the bank, and I go up to the ATM, and I deposit the checks. And I start hearing this little zing, da da ding da-da-ding sign. And I'm like, oh, no, something's wrong with the machine. And then it says it won't take the check. And then it says it's going to give me back the check. And then it doesn't give you back the check. And then it just says, error. And it says, call this number. And I'm like, I don't want to call the number. That sounds like a horrible idea. But I also like my money, so I call the number. And I call the number. And she's like, how can I help you, sir? I'm like, I had this problem with an ATM machine. Can you help me? And she's like, oh, I've already taken care of it, sir. I'm canceling your ATM card now. And I'm like, I never told you to do that. (laughs) She's like, so you can stop using it now. And there's a new one in the mail. And I'm like, that's not helpful. That's not helpful at all. And then I'm like, no, the ATM machine ate my checks and they told me to call this number and that's why I'm calling you because you're supposed to help me with that, like, right now. And she's like, sure, I'm happy to help you. Oh, you know what? We just closed. <laughs> I'm like, I'm on the phone talking to you. You can't close. Like... And then I'm like, why did you take this call if you knew that, like, and she's like, I'm sorry, I'll call back tomorrow. And so... And like at that point in the day, right, you have to ask yourself as a Christ follower, like Jesus could have prevented all of this and he didn't. He didn't. And so what on earth is he trying to teach me? God, make me slow to anger, okay? <laughs> you're going to learn. And you're going to keep repeating the lessons till you learn. J- Jesus always wants better things for us than we want for ourselves if we'll submit to his yoke because what made the day frustrating wasn't just block goals, it was me getting angry about all of those things and making it a thousand times worse. See, I want things to go my way. Jesus wants me to be slow to anger. Which one's better? I want more money. Jesus wants to teach me contentment in all circumstances. What's better? I want people to be less difficult. Jesus wants me to be more patient. What's going to make me happier? I want results now. Jesus wants to build endurance. I want my life to be calm and predictable. Jesus wants me to be anxious for nothing. See, Jesus wants me to sit under his yoke and make me the kind of person who can find joy in all circumstances, peace in all trials, endurance in all difficulties, because he knows that's where I'm going to find joy. And until I give up trying to be a constituent of Jesus, thinking that Jesus is there to to do my will, right? Right? And finally, just yield and say, Jesus, I am your servant and I don't serve in an advisory role. I'm just your servant. That's freedom. And and Jesus is so merciful. He's a merciful king. He's a gentle king. He's not ruling us to crush us, but to give us rest. So ask yourself, what is that thing in life where I have to get my way What would happen if Jesus got his? If you forgave or were content or had peace or let go of anger, do you really believe that Jesus getting his way is going to be better? That's the gut check question, right? Jesus is merciful. Here's the beautiful thing. When we cry out to Jesus because we need Jesus, guess what happens? He always answers that prayer. On his way up to Jerusalem, As Jesus is going through Jericho, this great crowd follows him. And you might remember the story. There's two blind men. And when they hear Jesus passing, they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David, that's the king. They cry out to the king. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open." And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, compare and contrast the blind guys with James and John's mom. Both of them come to Jesus. Both of them say, Lord, we have a request. Both times, Jesus says, what? What do you want? Mom says, give my son's authority that's like yours. What do the two blind men say? Just open our eyes. You're the only one who can. Those are the two ways of approaching Jesus. You can approach him and say, Jesus, you are a means to an end. Give me what I want. Or you can say, Jesus, you are the only one who can make me see. You are the only one who can give me healing. You are the only one who can give me help. And Jesus is always moved to pity when his people come to him with that request. Jesus, I just need you. He is the most lowly, the most gentle, the most helpful king you could imagine if you come to him on his terms and not your own. And that's what it means to come to Christ. To see this king who has all authority humbling himself to save you, you come to him humble. No one comes to Jesus standing up. You come on your knees and say, Jesus, it's your way and only your way. Teach me how to live. And he is so gentle and kind with us, and he will take us. And and here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He will be kinder to you every day than you are to yourself. He will be more patient with you, more forgiving of you, more gracious with you, more tender with you than you will ever be with you. It's way better to have that yoke on you than the yoke you're gonna put on you anyway. Because Jesus, when he leads, it's with no guilt, no shame. It's just sweet compassion. Come this way. Here's where life is. Follow me. The reality is this. We can't get it twisted when it comes to Jesus. He comes first humble on a donkey because he's offering amnesty, peace. Jesus is coming again. He's not coming on a donkey. A human hand will open the gate of heaven, And a king will descend, and he will be on a horse, not to make peace, but to make war. And on that day, every mouth will be stopped, every dark deed will be exposed, every tyrant will be thrown out, and every knee will bow. And every knee will bow on his terms, not yours. And so there are two options. This king is a king. And he is terrifying in his holiness and his judgment. And he now comes humbly offering peace. And so you can gladly submit to him now on the terms of his amnesty, or you can bow in crushed obedience then and submission at a day where every knee will bow. And the people who you fear most in life will fear him that day. That's the king. And that's the choice we have when we read about this passage. Jesus comes humbly to take our sin and die and rise again and so that we can come humbly to him and trust in him. Let's pray. And Jesus, in light of who you are, And we know how great and awesome you are, how much more astounding that you would come humbly, that you would come as a servant, that you would come to give your life as a ransom for us. And Jesus, I I pray that that would move us to trust you and accept you on your terms and not ours. And Jesus, to see the good life is sitting under your yoke, under your reign, because Lord, we don't know how to lead ourselves. But Jesus, you do. So would we bend the knee today and trust in you. Pray in your name, amen.